You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're finishing up this series, this Eastertide series that we've been in these last six weeks called Practicing Resurrection. You know, there are many different disciplines, spiritual disciplines of our rich faith tradition. Probably if you sat down, you could think of 12 or 15 of them. But we've been kind of talking about six of the practices, six spiritual practices that uh, Christians have embraced for 2,000 years. Practices that God uses in our formation. We are being formed in Christ. And that doesn't happen haphazardly. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen um, accidentally. It happens with our participation, and it's a work of the Spirit. God produces Christ's character in us over time. And I hope that's happening to us. I, I know it's a slow work. It's a work where we're trusting God's work, but we're also engaging with God in that. So we've talked about a number of them. Some of them are, are very popular practices to talk about. We've talked about prayer and scripture and worship. Some of them very unpopular, like giving and fasting. We've talked about those too. But we're talking about a practice um, this weekend that I guess gets neglected oftentimes. And it's the practice of solitude. You know, I could have picked a bunch of different practices, and I felt like maybe this would be a good one to end with this weekend, is the practice of solitude. I want to challenge you in this, this weekend. And our text today is going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 32 through 37. Let's look at this, and then I want, to, I want to actually show you the setting of this in just a moment. Mark chapter 1, verse 32. It's kind of at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It says, That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed by demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. Now I want to show you a picture on the screen just to kind of give you a glimpse of the ancient setting. This is in Capernaum. This is the setting of this very story. You know, if you ever go to Israel, and I always want to plug Israel, I'm passionate about um, if you have the opportunity to go, because it really makes the Bible come alive. Uh, But Capernaum is a non-negotiable place. You have to go. If you go to Israel, you haven't gone to Capernaum, you really haven't experienced uh, a, a pilgrimage trip. Because Capernaum is really where Jesus spent most of his ministry life. This is his headquarters. This is where he lived um, while he was doing much of his ministry in Galilee. And so this is like a glimpse of ancient Capernaum. In the foreground, you see the remains, the ruins of some of the homes there in this tiny little village where Jesus did so many of his miracles. I mean, I could list a bunch of them for you tonight if I wanted to take the time. But then you see in the background, you see this spaceship looking thing, right? Um, It's not a UFO. Uh, This is actually an Orthodox church, and it's built on top of 
a very, very, very ancient Christian church that is located within an earlier ancient home. And archaeologists and scholars are fairly certain that this is the home of Simon Peter. It's the home where Jesus actually lived when he was in Capernaum. And this is the setting of the story. I want you to envision this. Um, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, where, where, where I was standing when I took this picture. I was, I was on the remains of this ancient synagogue. And in the synagogue on Sabbath, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus drives out a demon. There's a demonized man in the synagogue. And on Sabbath, Jesus delivers this guy. And then he goes, walks the very short distance to this home, the home of Simon Peter and his family. And it's in this home where Jesus heals his mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, of a fever. And then Saturday at sundown, after the Sabbath ends, the whole village of Capernaum goes out to Jesus in this home. And all night long, Jesus is healing people of diseases, and he's delivering people from demons. He's just making people whole, making things right. All night long, these people are in a frenzy. They're like, man, this guy can do some stuff. We saw it with our own eyes. So all night long, he's working. He's healing. He's delivering. He's doing ministry. But there comes a point in the middle of the night. I want you to see this. Jesus breaks away from the crowd, gets away from the home, gets away from his disciples, and he goes out and finds a solitary place and gets alone with his father. Because Jesus understood that what enables him to be fruitful outwardly is this practice of solitude. That's the life-giving connection that makes his fruitfulness possible. And it's not just this isolated moment. You know, it's interesting to me. It says the disciples were hunting for him. He didn't want to be found. But it's not just this moment. This is a pattern. This is a rhythm throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. I'll give you just a quick summary. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went to the wilderness for an extended time of prayer and fasting. Before he chose his 12 apostles, he spent the entire night alone in the desert. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he, quote, withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart, Matthew 14, 13. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, quote, went up into the hills by himself. Have you ever done that here in these beautiful hills that surround us? Matthew 14, 23. Following the healing of a leper, Jesus, quote, withdrew to the wilderness and prayed, Luke 5, 16. With three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, he sought out the silence of a lonely mountain as the stage for his transfiguration. And this pattern continue, continued all the way to the very end on the night that he was arrested. Just before he's arrested, he again withdraws into the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. So Jesus had a regular rhythmic practice of withdrawing from the crowds and activities, and he taught his disciples to do the same. 
there was one occurrence where his disciples got back from this big ministry trip where he sends them out two by two for the first time. They've seen him do all of these miracles and all these deliverances, but now Jesus says, now I'm empowering you to go to do it. So he sends them two by two into these little villages. And so for a long period of time, they're out there and their minds are blown because God is using them now to bring healing to people and deliver people and set people free from all kinds of oppression. And they come back to Jesus after this length of time ministering and they're just like on fire. They're exhilarated. The adrenaline's pumping. And look at what Jesus tells them in Luke uh, or Mark chapter 6, verse 31. He says, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. I want you to know that if you are following Jesus, there are times and seasons where Jesus will say, it's time to go to work. Come on, let's put some elbow grease into it. Let's do some work. There's some opportunity in front of you. Let's seize the moment. But there will also be a rhythm of times when God will pull you out of that habit of work and they'll say, now it's time to rest. It's time to refresh yourself. It's time to get alone with me and let me once again pour my love into your life. If you were following someone, you can't follow someone at a faster pace than the one they're leading. It's kind of common sense. So we can't follow Jesus faster than he's leading us. And if we're following Jesus authentically, there will be moments and seasons where he will pull you away from the noise, from the activity, from the frenzy of life to get alone in his presence, to be refreshed. I'm sharing about this discipline this weekend you know, I mean, some of these other ones are kind of common sense. We ought to talk about prayer. We ought to talk about scripture. We ought to talk about worship. Solitude, I think sometimes it's a very neglected practice, especially here in our Western world. We don't think of solitude as a discipline, as a rhythm, as a practice for us as believers. And yet I think in the context of our Western world, particularly in this metropolitan city that moves so fast, I think this may be one of the most crucial disciplines for us to embrace as followers of Jesus here in Burbank, California. And as I was thinking about it, preparing this sermon, I, I thought of three things about our culture that causes us to resist the practice of solitude. So I want to give you real quickly these three things. The first thing, number one, is our addiction to hurry. Our addiction to hurry. We live in a society that is driven by a compulsion to hurry. And we will buy anything that promises to help us hurry. Years ago, many years ago, the number one shampoo brand in America rose to its number one ranking because it became the first shampoo company to combine shampoo and conditioner in one step thereby eliminating all of that time-consuming rinsing you had to do. Domino's Pizza years ago became one of the top pizza chains in America because they promised to deliver pizza within 30 minutes or less or your pizza was free. The USA Today reports, taking a cue from Domino's Pizza, a Detroit hospital guarantees that emergency room patients will be seen within 20 minutes or treatment is free. And the paper notes that business has gone up at the hospital 30%. McDonald's. For many, many years, McDonald's has been the number one food chain in America. Not because they sell good food or even cheap food, 
but because they sell fast food. In fact, way back when fast food was invented, people still had to get out of their cars and walk inside and go to a counter and order their food and take their food to a table, all of which took time. So we eventually invented the drive through lane so that people could eat in their cars as nature intended. <laughs> We're haunted by this fear that there's just not enough hours, there's not enough time in the day to get done everything that we need to get done. And so we do everything faster. We read faster. We talk faster. Whenever we're listening to someone, we nod our head faster to try to encourage them to hurry up and make their point. We drive faster. Whenever we pull up to a red light and there's a car in each lane, we find ourselves guessing based on the year, make, and model of each car which one's going to pull out faster. I'm preaching to myself too, Doug. This is a sermon. For, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one. But I'm serious when I say hurry is, is the great spiritual enemy of our lives. It's toxic to our soul. It kills our ability to love. If I don't have a rhythm of slowing and solitude and stillness, it prevents me from regularly, rhythmically receiving the Father's love so that I can pour it out on the people around me. Dallas Willard, one of my spiritual heroes, he famously said, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Carl Jung once said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. See, for many of you in this room, the great danger to your faith, your Christian faith, is not that you're going to renounce Jesus one day. Most of you here in our comfortable Western world, you're not going to renounce Jesus. You're going to hold on to Jesus. You're going to hold on to your faith. But the great danger to your faith is that you'll become so preoccupied, so busy, and so rushed that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. And we'll just skim through our lives without really living them. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll never have things to do. Jesus often had much to do, but he never went about it in a way that severed his life-giving connection with the Father, and he never went about it in a way that prevented him from stopping and spontaneously showing and giving love when the moment called for it. Our addiction to hurry, number one. Number two, very similar, is our addiction to activity. We constantly have to be doing something. And if we don't have anything to do, we, we find something. We create something to do. That's why the smartphone is simultaneously the greatest invention of my lifetime and also maybe the most dangerous and most potentially toxic invention of my lifetime. Because no matter where I am on the planet, at any given moment, in my pocket, I can pull out this weapon of mass distraction. And there's literally a billion things to distract my mind with. There's always another text to read. There's always another email to check. There's always another Facebook post to look at. There's always another picture to take. There's always another song to listen to. There's always another stock to check. Always another solitaire game to play. Billions and billions of distractions. And it keeps us enslaved to activity. And I cannot, I cannot 
rhythmically receive from God if my mind and my life is enslaved to activity, if I don't have the space and the container for it. One writer notes an experiment that was done with mice a few years ago. A researcher found that it takes a high dose of amphetamines to kill a mouse living in solitude. But a group of mice will start hopping around and hyping each other up so much that a dosage 20 times smaller will be lethal. In fact, a mouse that had been given no amphetamines at all placed in a group on the drug will get so hopped up that in 10 minutes or so it will be dead. The writer observed in in groups they go off like popcorn or firecrackers. The truth is as much as we complain about it, we're drawn to activity. We're drawn to busyness. It makes us feel important. It keeps the adrenaline pumping. It also keeps us from having to look too deeply into our own lives and our own soul. It keeps us from feeling that twinge of loneliness and discontentment. We mask over it with busyness and activity. That's what we do. And I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I want you to know that. Our addiction to hurry, our addiction to activity. And then the third one I thought of, and this, one, this one's in a little bit of a different category. I thought about it in particular as it relates to prayer. Number three is our addiction to words. I give a lot of teaching on prayer, and I think one of the big habits we've got to learn to break is the compulsion to constantly be speaking in prayer. There's a time to speak. There's a time to listen. There's also a time to just be with God. But we, we, we feel this instinct to always be talking all the time. I think, I think it goes back, it's not just in prayer, but even in our relationships with one another, I think very early on in our lives, we learned that our words can be a tool that we can use to manipulate people's impressions of us. If I could just say the right thing, if I could just say it enough, I can manage this person's impression of me. But when it comes to our our prayer and our time with God, we have to remember God doesn't have an impression of you. God knows you. He knows the real you. He knows you more than you know yourself. So there's a time to speak in prayer. There's a time to listen. There's also a time to just be with God. As somebody just recently said, I think it was John, it's good sometimes to just waste time with God. Wasting time with God is the best time you'll ever spend. I mean, there's a time to to climb the mountain, be with God. There's also a time to come back down the mountain and deal with real life. But it's, it's on top of the mountain where I'm where I'm encountering the loving Christ that empowers me to live as Christ towards my fellow man and fellow woman. I've shared in the past about my granddaddy, my my mom's dad, Joe Broach. And, you know, he was one of those people in my life, and everybody's got at least one of these people. He was one of those rare folks that I could be in a room with, I could be on a road trip with for hours, And neither one of us would feel the pressure to start a conversation or to keep the conversation going. He he and I, we were totally comfortable in silence together. Now, if we had something to say, we'd say it. But we were, I I can remember this road trip we took uh, when our big family took a vacation to the beach. It was like a three three and a half hour trip. And I was in the car with my granddaddy for that entire three and a half hours. I don't think he spoke a single word. 
we were just in the car together. Like all of you, some of you I know really well, some of you I don't know very well, but I know just about all of you on some level. But even the ones who I know really well, if you and I were on a six-hour road trip together, very quickly it would get awkward. We would get into the car immediately talking, and then for the next 30, 40 minutes, we'd be thinking of every possible topic of conversation we could bring up. And eventually, when we ran out of that, it would get super awkward. And we'd start bringing up things we've already brought up because we're uncomfortable with silence. But you can tell how well you know a person by how comfortable you are in silence with them. This is where we want to get with God. Where we say, you know what, I don't have to speak to try to control God's impression of me because that's not where my... That's not where my fruitfulness comes from. That's not where my worth comes from. It doesn't come from my performance. I am loved just as I am. I am valued just as I am. Christ defined my worth on the cross. I have unsurpassable worth because he paid an unsurpassable price. He thinks I'm worth dying for. So that's who I am. I don't have to manipulate God's impression as if I even could. So I'm learning now to be content with the silence, to be with God in the quiet of the moment resting in his unconditional love that actually causes me to run towards him as we sang. I run to the father because I, I know that's where I'm unconditionally loved as the prodigal son knew where to go home when everything else had collapsed in his life. He knew the one thing he could count on. Solitude in prayer strips us away of our own agenda our own script and it places us at the mercy of the only one who actually transforms us we cannot engineer our own transformation jesus once famously said i am the vine you are the branches so what enables you and i to live fruitful lives is not our performance in prayer or anything else it's simply being connected to the vine and so it's healthy for us to remind ourselves, to get ourselves into this rhythm. I love the word rhythm. You probably hate me because I say it all the time, but it's one of the most useful words in our do-it-yourself spirituality culture. Have it your way, on the spot, instantaneously. We need spiritual rhythms of prayer and worship and scripture and, and community and solitude because it reminds me that my connection with God is what causes my fruitfulness. And so I'm going to embrace silence, stillness, and solitude in God's presence so that it can cause me to be a more fruitful, loving person in my external life. In solitude, we withdraw from conversation, from the presence of others, from noise, from the constant barrage of stimulation. In solitude, we have no friends to talk to. We have no phone to check. We have no streaming devices in our lap. No music or books or newspapers to occupy and distract, distract the mind. Each of us are just as, as I am. As the old hymn says, just as I am before the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is something I have to be diligent about in my life. I have to be very intentional and focused if I'm going to have rhythms of solitude. Because there are trillions of potential distractions biting for my attention. 
And so it takes intentionality and commitment and determination to shut that valve off, to cut everything else out for a period of time and to get alone with God. So it's going to take some determination to embrace this rhythm of solitude. But as we talk about this, it might be helpful to think about solitude in two categories. The first one is everyday solitude. Everyday solitude. And I think everybody here, no matter how much stuff you've got going on in your life, there is room right now in your life for everyday solitude. Think about those first few moments when you wake up in bed and the rest of the family hasn't gotten up yet. Or maybe you slip out of bed and you get your morning coffee and you go out onto the porch or you go into your morning recliner and you just give those first few moments of the day to the Lord. Five minutes and, and you, maybe you even like envision your day. Every conversation you have, every meeting you're going to go to and you just envision that day with the Lord. Give it to Him. Maybe you're at work and there's just a tiny little interval of time where you shut the computer off and you sit in your chair, you, maybe you go to the corner of your office and just take a deep breath and you remind yourself, be still and know that I am God. And then at the end of your day, this is to me one of the most valuable practices, is at the very end of your day, maybe just before you get into bed, find a place where you just take five or ten minutes and review your day with God. This is very helpful. I used to, in, in high school, I used to play uh, baseball. And um, I remember our coach had a practice where we were all going to take batting practice. He had everything set up for batting practice. And yet right across, um, on the other side of the net, right across from home plate where we're standing like this, he had a tripod with a camera set up. And he filmed us taking batting practice. He filmed our swings. And then the next day, instead of going out onto the baseball diamond to practice, he took us into the locker room and he had the TV set up. And as a team, we watched and critiqued each person's swing. We looked at the stance. We looked at the, the weight distribution, the stride, the pivot, um, everything, every, everything, top to bottom. We looked at every aspect of our swing and critiqued it and talked about, here's what this person needs to work on. Here's what they, and, and see, I had been taking batting practice all year long, but I had never actually watched myself take a swing. And I actually thought I was a terrible hitter or at least a terrible swinger. And I was a terrible hitter. But it wasn't until I actually watched myself swing where I realized, man, that's a pretty solid swing. And I, everything's looking pretty good there. If I could just make contact with a ball, Dave Delgado. But you see, what we were doing is we were reviewing the film, reviewing the tape, and it helped us to tighten up our swing. The same principle is true with you and your spiritual life. One of the most helpful practices that will, that will further and spur on your growth is to look back on the last day with God. Remember the pivotal moments of your day. Maybe you had one or two of them. Maybe there was a conversation you had with someone that really stuck out to you and ask the Lord, Lord, let's review this together and just see what themes pop up. Maybe it's something that's encouraging and, and, and affirming. Maybe the, maybe the Lord wants to say, good job with that one. You nailed it. You really yielded to the spirit in that moment. Or it may be something where it's like, okay, we messed up. We didn't handle that right. And yet let's look at the next day. Let's look ahead now. Let's learn from it and let's look forward. That's one of the things that could really help us is everyday solitude. 
And then secondly, and I'm going to come to a close in just a moment. Secondly, there are those times scattered throughout the year where we need larger intervals of extended periods of solitude. Maybe for you, maybe it would be half a day. Or maybe it would be an entire day. Or even a few days of solitude with God. Now this is not just a vacation or anything like that. This is just focused time with the Lord where you've cut off everything else. And some of you, maybe, maybe you've got a lot of family responsibilities and so maybe like an entire day is not doable for you in this season. That's okay. It may be just a couple hours, maybe a half a day. But for me, I know that what keeps me spiritually healthy is not only my daily time of everyday solitude and even my weekly solitude. I have a kind of a practice of Sabbath in my life. But also about every three months, I have a time of extended solitude with the Lord. Sometimes it's a whole day. Sometimes it may be two or three days. I just scheduled something in the fall where I'm going to take about three or four days and it's just going to be me, God, and my Bible. And that keeps me healthy. That's helpful to me. And there are times where we need those seasons. We need those moments where we can look at our lives from a broader perspective and allow the Holy Spirit to show us, you know, Lord, where do you see me? Where, where do you see me in five years? 10 years? What goals, what specific themes do you want to speak into my life right now? And give God that kind of time and space to speak into your life. That, that's not going to happen in five minutes. You need to create that space for the Lord to speak into your life. I want to share one example of something recently in my life um, that, that, really, that just happened to me. That was one of the coolest things that I've ever experienced. It started about five years ago on my second trip to Israel. And we were staying for about three or four nights in the city of Tiberias, right there on the Sea of Galilee. It's where all of the people stay when they come to Galilee. And um, we had a group, we had a smaller group. It was like 18 or 19 people from our church that came. And so we ended up staying in an Airbnb together, like a large Airbnb with a bunch of bedrooms. And um, so the first night... After getting some sleep, I woke up very early in that, that morning before anybody else got up. And I got my Bible and I said, you know what? I'm on the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to take some time and pray on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so I got up and I walked out of the Airbnb and I, I went as close to the shore as I could reasonably get. It was about, an, about a mile and a half walk, but I found a place uh, to sit on. It was like a ledge, a, a stone ledge. And I sat down on that ledge, and, and I want to show you the picture. Um, I'll tell you how this picture was taken in just a moment. You're like, how, how did he plan that? Uh, I didn't. But I found this ledge, and um, I'm sitting on this ledge, spent about 45 minutes in prayer, watching the sun come up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm looking up, and on this power line over here, I can still see it in my mind's eye, these birds are standing on the power line watching the sun come up with me. We had our own little worship service right there on this sea where Jesus walked on this water and Jesus calmed this storm and Peter and Andrew and James and John made a livelihood fishing on this sea and I just spent my time in prayer that morning. It was just an exhilarating time with God and it came at a time in my life, 2017, where I first started sensing a transition was coming. I started to feel this discontentment in my soul 
recognizing that God's nudging me right now. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I don't feel like I'm supposed to stay where I am. So Lord, help me. <laughs> Bring some clarity. Show me the way. So this is where, this is a moment that really defined my journey that ultimately led me here. And every morning when we were on the Sea of Galilee, I came and I sat in that exact spot and I prayed. And then the last morning before, before the um, night was over, I invited some of my friends who were on the trip with me, about three other guys. I said, listen guys, I've been going out to pray uh, by the Sea of Galilee. If you're interested, let's wake up at such and such a time and we'll walk down there and find a place to pray. And so I had about three of these guys say, yeah, I want to do it. So we all walked down there together and we found a prayer spot and we said, let's meet here at a certain time. And uh, little did I know, one of my buddies, evidently he must have got bored at some point, and he just started walking around and he took this picture from a distance of me praying on this ledge and he gave it to me and it just became a treasure. It's actually my screensaver on my computer and, uh, and I ended up painting a painting of this scene. So it became a precious moment for me. Well, fast forward five years and I'm with 37 village church people. This is just, what, six months ago. And we, um, I'm going through, a, I booked it through a different tour company. And so they booked some different hotels. I had no idea what hotel we were going to stay in. I saw the pictures. They looked good. But I didn't know where it was located. And so we stayed um, at this hotel on the Sea of Galilee called the Sophia Hotel. From now on, it's going to be the only hotel I stay in on the Sea of Galilee. It's just a fabulous hotel. And um, the next afternoon... We had some free time, our, itinera our itinerary was over for the day, and I decided, um, you know, let me go out for a walk, let me see if I can go find that Airbnb that we stayed at. I had no idea if I could. So I got out of the hotel, I started walking out of the hotel. I got one block, and this spot was right there, next to the hotel. Now you gotta understand, Tiberius, geographically, is about the size of Burbank. And there are nearly 500 hotels in Tiberius. And we just happened to stay at this hotel one block away from my sacred prayer spot. So I said, oh no, I can't pass this up. So I, I went and I found that same ledge and I just sat on this ledge and I spent maybe 20 minutes just reflecting on the goodness of God because I remembered that it was on that ledge where really that was a moment that triggered the start of my journey that ultimately led me to Village Church where I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be and God willing, I'll be here the rest of my ministry life and I was just, it, it was like the perfect, perfect bracket of that journey. On the same ledge where I prayed about the beginning is the ledge where I gave thanks for where he ultimately brought me. And so I spent about 20 minutes, then I went and found that Airbnb, then I walked all the way back, I was dog tired, and then later at dinner, Steve Rios came, and came to me, took me, by the, took me aside, and he said, Ryan, where were you this afternoon? What, did you, what were you doing this afternoon? And I told him, well, you know, uh, I went out and found this Airbnb. And, and he said, no, 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 what did you do before then? And I said, well, I, I had this prayer spot and, um, I, um, from my last trip, so I went and found it. it. It was just actually right there. It was like a block away. So I went and I prayed. And Steve pulled out his phone and he showed me a picture. He had no idea. He had no idea what I was doing. He had no idea that a, a picture was taken. And I'm actually, I, I analyzed it later, I'm sitting on the same stone. 
And Steve gave me this picture, not knowing. I, I, I had to pull out my phone and I showed him. Five years ago, there was a picture taken from that exact spot from somebody I, was, I didn't even know they were taking it. And Steve has no idea what a gift to me that was, what a spirit-inspired gift that was. And it was just a moment of wonderful confirmation. Not that I needed any more confirmation, but just one of those extra special blessings from the Lord. My hand is on you. And I'm guiding your journey. And you see, what made these encounters possible was just the instinct to get away from everything periodically to get away from the noise and the activity. If I was enslaved to activity in that moment, and it's something I, can, I constantly have to fight, guys, but I would have missed something precious. And so when we create time and space for God to move, not every time is there going to be this amazing epiphany. Like these moments, I can count them on like one hand, how many I've had throughout my life, maybe, maybe two hands, but they don't happen all the time. But every so often, pow, he meets me on Mount Sinai. He meets me on Mount Tabor. And so I would encourage you, go up the mountain. Take time out daily, weekly, periodically. Give space and time to the Lord. He will meet you in profound ways. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.